My name is John Huggins. I'm the chaplain at Berry College, and I'm privileged to be here filling in for Brian this morning. Happy fifth day of Christmas to you. Um, for those of you, for the children that still remain in here, Christmas season, as it's already been alluded to this morning, is 12 days long normally. So you should uh, I encourage your parents to give you presents for 12 days rather than just one, or perhaps open one present each day for 12 days, and you can celebrate all the way into the new year. Now, uh, going back to the, about the 5th century AD, Christians have celebrated three other feasts immediately following Christmas Day. Uh, on the 26th, it's, Saint, it's the Feast of St. Stephen, who's the first Christian martyr. The 27th is the Feast of St. John the Evangelist, who was a lifelong witness um, for Jesus Christ. And then on the 28th, which would have been yesterday, uh, is the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And that connects actually to our reading today. Um, It's a a day of remembering the children, the boys who were murdered by King Herod uh, shortly after Jesus' birth. It's a time when they remember them and also uh, mourn and the loss of all victims of injustice, whether it's a tyrannical king or self-serving society. Um, We'll say more about that uh, in just a little bit. So the message today is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. This is the gospel reading in the lectionary, and Brian asked me to preach on this passage, uh, which is not exactly the easiest passage to preach on. Um, there's kind of three things that happen in the narrative. There's the flight to Egypt, Herod killing the children, and then them resettling, the Holy Family resettling in Nazareth. I'll read the passage in just a moment. But first, I'd like to offer a short prayer. So may the words of my mouth, Lord, and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So let's read the passage, and then I just want to offer some comments on the passage in sort of a commentary-type style. Um, I think it'll be up here on on the screen. You can read silently along with me as I read aloud. Now, when they had departed, that is, the Magi, after visiting Jesus, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
and being warned in a dream, again, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to offer uh, some comments on sort of uh, three main things. Uh, The first thing I want to talk about is uh, Joseph. Now, Brian made some comments last week along these lines, but I want to uh, make some of the same points again. I was actually already planning on it, and then uh, as he was preaching his sermon, I was like, whoa, 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 don't say too much. I want to say a little bit more about that Uh, next week. Don't take my sermon away from me. There wasn't much else to it at that point. So, talking about Joseph, he's one of the characters that you just have to love and admire in the story. This Joseph, we only know a few things about him. We know that he was a descendant of David and that he was a carpenter, which is, much, uh, which is a broader term, actually, than just being a woodworker. He's more like a, a, a general contractor, a builder of sorts. Um, and the other thing we know about him is that he always obeys God. When God tells him to do something. Uh, once Jesus' public ministry begins, we don't know about Joseph. We don't hear about him anymore. It seems that he's probably passed away by that point because Mary's still present, but Joseph isn't. But as far as those who, after Jesus would have been weaned as a child, he probably would have spent more one-on-one time with this person, Joseph, than anyone else in his growing up years. What an amazing uh, calling he was given And his legacy is that, being instructed in a dream by an angel to go do something difficult. (laughs) Go marry the pregnant fiancé. It's okay. Now take your family and go to Egypt. Okay, now go back to uh, Israel. Don't settle in Judea, go settle in Nazareth. You know, you wonder if each time he gets his business set up and probably going and then thinks, the Lord appears to him, oh, we got to leave again. Um, So he does it, and you get no word of complaint, although that might have been there, but that's not presented in the the story. It's an amazing legacy, and it shows to us uh, one of many things is that uh, Joseph was a good choice for Jesus' earthly father, just as Mary was a good choice, the best choice for Jesus' earthly mother. Her response to the angel in Luke's gospel is the ideal response to God's message anytime we're called to do something that I am the Lord's servant, let it be to me according to your word. Uh, And here we find Matthew focuses the story on Joseph's leadership in this story, Uh, how the thing, how the story unfolds from Joseph's perspective. Um, In fact, God leads and protects the holy family through Joseph. And I think there's probably a good word for fathers in that. God leading and protecting the family through him. But most importantly, uh, more importantly even than Joseph, is Jesus. I want to talk about him, say several things about him in this passage. Um, Jesus' life is the climax of biblical history. It is the long story of redemption reaches what's been anticipated through all the covenant promises and the prophetic hope in his life. And even beginning in the genealogy, Matthew sets things up to, to show us, to say to us that Jesus is the most important person who's ever been born, that everything has been leading up to his life, his moment. Uh, this is the uh, climax of history. 
Another thing that Matthew's gospel and that the gospels in general present to us is that Jesus is Israel in person. I want you to think about this concept for a moment and and try to understand it. Israel in person. We know and tend to think about Jesus being God in person. And we also know from elsewhere, particularly Paul, that Jesus is mankind in person. So he's called the second Adam. But in the Gospels, he's mainly presented as Israel in person. What does that mean? Um, We never would want to fail to remember that Jesus is God incarnate um, or that his story is larger than just his story. His story becomes the story for all of us, the story actually that narrates reality, the story that establishes what's true for the world. Uh, To be Israel in person means that Jesus embodied all of Israel's hopes and dreams in himself, and he also relives, so to speak, certain parts of their history. Like, for instance, he he goes to spend time in Egypt, much like the Israelites of old had. He is protected in Egypt, much like Moses in old, of old was <clears throat> from a cruel tyrant. He spends time in the wilderness. And Jesus' time in the wilderness is very significant because there he proves faithful to God where Israel proved faithless to God in the wilderness in the Old Testament. He is succeeding where humanity has failed. He's doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And since Israel was the kingdom of priests, that means that they were the representatives for all mankind in relating to God, and it was supposed to be through them that the whole world would come to know God. Uh, To embody Israel's story is to live humanity's story. Part of Israel's vocation was to bring, that is their calling, was to bring salvation blessing to the world. Remember God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through you all the nations will be blessed. They fail in that vocation. However, Jesus would do this as the faithful Israelite, the faithful Jew. So in that sense, he is Israel in person. He, um, it's also important to understand that Scripture is Jesus' story that is primarily about him. Uh, at the end of Luke and also in John, Jesus is, tells us that the right way to read Scripture is with a, a Christological lens, which is to say that we read everything through the story of Jesus. It, it is the thing that shapes how we would understand, interpret, and apply the text that we're reading. Jesus says that all of this was about me. All of this was pointing to me. All of this was preparing the world for what I'm doing right here and now. So it's actually fully appropriate for us to read the Bible backwards, so to speak. That is to read the Old Testament story through the lens of the new, and particularly through uh, the Jesus lens. Uh, The earliest Christians, they looked to the Old Testament to understand who Jesus was and is and what he had done. So the Old Testament story is not just the story about Israel, it's also the story that um, Jesus will come to embody, to reenact, um, to fully live out. And so the author is keen to tell us three times in this passage that I read, you know, this happened to fulfill, he says at one time, another time, and then was fulfilled what was said through the prophet Jeremiah, and then later on, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that language of fulfillment. Another way you see this Israel in person thing is when he quotes the Hosea passage, out of Egypt I called my son. So that that passage is originally spoken in the book of Hosea, and it's about Israel. Out of Israel, I call, out of Egypt I called my son Israel. 
But here, the verse is being applied to Jesus, which is to say the proper referent for that passage and the designation son belongs to Jesus ultimately and chiefly. To say that uh, he is embodying Israel's story is also another way of saying that Jesus' uh, story is the true story of the world. What does that mean? It means what he is doing is the story that defines what is real and true, good and beautiful, the story of God as found in Jesus. One of the important things for Christians to often do, and we should often be asking ourselves, how in tune is our life's story with the true story of reality? How in tune is what I'm doing with my life with what Jesus and his purposes are, with his commands, uh, with his kingdom? Uh, The truly authentic human life is lived only in accord with the Jesus story. The Jesus story being fully appropriated to one's life, where Jesus is is not just in theory, but in fact, functioning as my Savior and Lord, where His kingdom is our home and establishes where we get our identity from, and where His mission is also our mission, and His teaching is our treasure. It's also only through Jesus that other human beings like us get the designation of son or daughter of God. <clears throat> A third point that I want to comment on in this passage is what is often referred to as the murder of the innocents. <clears throat> I don't know if you've heard a sermon on this passage before or not, but it's, it's not easy to preach. We like to think of the Christmas story all as this very sweet thing. Um, and this, this moment keeps us from being able to turn Jesus' birth into a fairy tale, doesn't it? We are struck by the cruelty, the brutality of Herod the Great. Uh, it reminds us that it's a dark and difficult and cruel world that Jesus entered, and that he entered it in total vulnerability, uh, and it was totally unjust. So in this moment, Herod, in his jealousy, Herod the Great, kills uh, the male children in that region. Now, some scholars suggest that that may have been anywhere from maybe 10 to 30 young boys. Um, But think of how it would have marked that community forever. They remember the time when Herod the Great came and killed uh, their children, all these young boys who would have been about Jesus' age. Who knows if they remembered it later on in Jesus' life. One of the reasons I think that there's a feast to honor the holy innocents um, is that they in their own way died for Jesus, like other Christian martyrs would later in history. So it follows on the the feast of St. Stephen, St. John, the holy innocent children. Um, it's brutal, but it, by being this way, by sh- sh- telling us about this uh, moment, it corresponds to the reality that we experience uh, in life and keeps it from having, as I said, that fairy tale feel about it. It's, this is not just a sweet story of old of Jesus' origins. We should feel the pain and grief of this moment 
It reminds us, too, that Jesus is coming into the world to experience pain, that he himself is going to, as Isaiah said, carry our griefs. He's not riding in on a victorious horse. He's coming in, as I said, in the most vulnerable way. The divine will have to be protected and cared for by human beings and will eventually be killed by human beings. God put, makes himself uh, utterly vulnerable. Um, I have a son that's just under two years old and two uh, nephews that are also in the same age group. <clears throat> Our lives, had we lived then and there at that time, would have been affected by Jesus' birth in this way. <clears throat> Not in a happy way. In their own way, they died for Jesus. But another point that emerges here that we also see is that uh, that God warns Joseph so that him and his family can uh, flee to Egypt and keep the child safe. Again, the divine is being protected by the human. Mary and Joseph are definitely worthy of our admiration. Uh, They were given uh, this wonderful but incredibly difficult uh, calling. Maybe it's because uh, we don't, some of us want to avoid uh, become, you know, um, seeming too Catholic by honoring Mary uh, as the mother of Jesus, um, that we fail to give her appropriate honor or to admire her and Joseph as we should. They're rightly called saints. And we ourselves might draw strength from their vocation. Um, Because God doesn't promise us a nice life. God doesn't promise us a real easygoing um, uh, career. If you came to Jesus looking for that, you will be disappointed. Being faithful to God's call often includes great difficulty. As any of you who have sought to be faithful to God in your life have experienced And if you read just any given story from the Bible, you'll see that is usually the case. Moses, I love you and I have a difficult plan for your life. Right now everything's nice and smooth and easy for you, but it's about to get difficult. Isn't that great? Come and follow me. Think of any Old Testament prophet. Hey, you want to speak for me? Yes, I want to speak for you. Well, they're going to kill all of you. Uh, that's how it works. Um, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. That, that's great. What a noble calling to be an apostle. But they're, they're going to kill all, all of you, except for maybe one. Um, now, to follow Jesus is to embrace and to accept that life, is, life has its real difficulties, but that there's something else that's more valuable than those difficulties. Uh, there's something more wonderful than experiencing hardship <clears throat> And that is uh, being close to Jesus, being part of God's divine plan in the world. And the promise of God in in the New Testament is that God has a place for each one of us in his plans for the world. And because the world is not fully redeemed, we'll experience difficulty there. Jesus told us that himself. In this world, you have trouble, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. In him, we'll have peace. Um, Jesus does not serve our idols so uh, those of us who are wanting just Jesus to make a life more comfortable for us, or things more easygoing, uh, he's usually not you know, you know, going to do that. Though we do get great comfort and joy, as we sang about earlier, from Jesus. Uh, he is not there to, to serve our dreams and visions, but is calling us to follow him, as difficult as it may be. 
keep Mary and Joseph in your mind. Draw strength from their story, from their willingness to say, okay, I just got things set up here. God, we just got a house in Egypt. Oh, now we got to sell it. Oh, now the, uh, the market just crashed. Oh, then it's going to foreclose and uh, it's going to stink. Um, uh, oh, God, didn't you call us to, come to, to leave? Uh, didn't you call us to go here? Have you ever done that? Has you ever experienced this in your life where you are fairly certain that you're obeying what the Spirit of God has called you to do, but things aren't working out right? They're not going well. Um, and you might be tempted to think, well, surely God would just make everything peaceful and easy and uh, clear. Or you're graduating from school and there's no job, and so you have to go back to living in your parents' basement or your, their attic or something and, um, and working at your high school job. And you think, I got a college degree for this. Uh, remember Mary and Joseph in those moments. <clears throat> there's a great moment in the movie called the, the Nativity Story that came out like in 2003 or so, where uh, Mary and Joseph are leaving Nazareth to go register for the census. And uh, in the movie, everyone in town is just looking at them with shameful eyes. You know, they're just shaming them with their eyes. And Joseph looks to Mary and he says, oh, they're going to miss us. <clears throat> and uh, they can't sugarcoat their story or the difficulty of it. <laughs> Well, then they uh, are called to settle back in Nazareth. Now, the statement about him being called a Nazarene is actually not a specific Old Testament prophecy. I think that's why the writer says what was spoken by the prophets, plural. There's not a specific word that says this, but there's a general idea of the Messiah being a despised person. And Nazareth was a despised place. The Romans didn't even consider it worth invading. Uh, we, won't, we won't even take over and kill those people. They're not even worth it. <clears throat> There's also, uh, there may also be an interesting connection with the word Nazareth uh, to the Hebrew word branch, because it sounds like the Hebrew word branch. And in Isaiah 11.1, 1, it talks about the branch that comes forth from the stump of Jesse, and the spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. Some perhaps a play on words. Notice that the text points out that they avoided settling in Judea because Archelaus is reigning there. Um, after Herod the Great died, he ruled over all the region of Palestine. Uh, after he died, his kingdom's divided up among his sons. And so his son Archelaus is ruling over Judea. This is where the city of Jerusalem is. Uh, so you might think this is the, the hot spot where you might need to be if you're going to be the Messiah and all that. Uh, but Archelaus was essentially a madman, uh, so crazy and as bad as his father that the emperor, Caesar Augustus, eventually deposed him and banished him to Gaul because uh, that's where you send people, I guess, if they're bad. And uh, he sets up a Roman proconsulship in Judea. That is, a Roman governor would rule over that part of the land. And that sets things up for Pontius Pilate to be the Roman governor over Judea when Jesus comes to be crucified. And that was important because only a Roman authority could issue execution by crucifixion. When you read about Herod later on in the Gospels, you're reading about Herod Antipas, who was another one of Herod the Great Sons who ruled over the region of Galilee, but it's a different Herod. Uh, One of the things we might take away from that is just noting the sovereign hand of God in the workings of history. We sometimes imagine God must only work in ways that appear miraculous to us, uh, but if God is working slowly, He can be working in the normal events of history and nature to cause things to happen the way that He wants them to. 
to set things up to fulfill his purposes and plans. Well, in conclusion uh, to this, I want to remind you that Matthew presents Jesus as the most important person in the world, as the climax of history and the climax of Scripture, the often repeated references to something being something fulfilling what was said by the prophets. Uh, Matthew also presents Jesus as the new and greater Moses. He's like Moses, only greater, only more important, who will give us God's teachings. He's like the prophets of old, only greater. So it's in Matthew when he, when he says something greater than Jonah is, is here. Um, he would speak God's word to the world in its purest form. Something greater than the kings of old is here. In Matthew it says, Jesus speaking with reference to himself, he says, something, someone greater than Solomon is here. The one who would rescue and rule God's people through his own death and resurrection. And then finally, something greater than the temple is there, is also in Matthew. <clears throat> the, Matthew uh, the temple was the place where heaven and earth met where reconciliation with God was possible. And now Jesus has come on the scene to upstage the temple and say, if you want to be reconciled to God, you come here to Him. If you want to be at the place where heaven and earth meet, you go to Him. So we might ask ourselves, in light of uh, reading the Gospels, and even a short passage like this, a bigger question. Why are we here at church this morning? Why are we being identified with the Christian community. What does it even mean to be a Christian? Someone who uh, trusts this story, who believes in this story, who finds hope in this story. Uh, Do we come and are we here just to simply feel good? What what motivates you to come to Seven Hills on Sunday morning? So that we can feel like we're good people? I think we should ask ourselves... Is it even on the radar of my heart to say, to, to, to remember that I am here to exalt this Jesus? If Matthew is saying Jesus is the most important person in history, everything is about him. And we're coming to align our lives like a laser beam with the purposes of God to say, yes, that's why we're here. That's what we're all about too. To surrender ourselves to Jesus anew, to offer ourselves to him. To uh, Do we say, uh, in, is your heart and mind, for instance, saying to God this morning, we are here for you, we need you, Lord, we love you, we want what only you can give, we live in a dark, cruel world, as you know, and we want to be part of your redemptive work in this world. So from God's perspective, everything revolves around Jesus. How about from our perspective? Well, in response to any passage of Scripture, I think that the first mode of application is to simply hear and believe uh, the the text, to hear and believe it. And by believing it, I I don't mean mustering up some sort of fake, sort of, yeah, I'll believe, I'll pretend this is true, but a trust and reliance upon the text. That's the first way we apply you know, sometimes people say, get practical and apply the Scriptures to our lives. Well, the first way you apply the Scripture is you hear it and believe it. You trust in it. <clears throat> the second way you respond to Scripture is, by, is through repentance. And what I mean by repentance is turning away from life 
on our own terms, when life on our own terms conflicts or contradicts what's revealed in the text. And then in the only logical place to go from repentance is to prayer, where we're praying for God's help, we're praying for God's mercy, we're praying for the transformation of our hearts. And then lastly, to in faith commit ourselves anew to Jesus, which is to commit ourselves to God. And so in these next few moments, as the worship team comes back up to lead us in a final song, let us think about these sort of seemingly random events in the story of Jesus' early life. How might we hear and trust it? How might we turn away from life on our own terms to be um, inspired again by Mary and Joseph's story, or perhaps in their example, or perhaps recognizing that from God's perspective, everything's about Jesus. <clears throat> Is that true for us too? To pray for help and transformation. And then lastly, that we all should here today be saying, uh, in faith, we want to com- commit ourselves to you anew, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, gracious God, would you give us eyes to see your glory and power in this passage, your sovereign rule over history and time, and how you gave Jesus to us as a gift to represent us, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. I pray that this would lead us to repentance and also encourage us in faith, that uh, we would be captivated by it in our minds, we'd see the story of Jesus as beautiful and compelling so much that we can't help but want to offer, surrender ourselves to you, to say, yes, we're with you, Jesus. We want to be identified with you. We're not just here at church because we want to to feel good uh, or get a little pointer on how to do life better. Um, We're here because we need you. We love you. We want what only you can provide. We want to be a part of your story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.